This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. So, Peter, one of the most compelling things about your book, and I, I picked it up and I read it over the weekend, which completely took me off guard, was that 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 intersection between art and science. And I, I mean, I'm sure art is inspired by nature and a lot by science, but this idea of art mimicking nature is something I never thought about in that way. Could you tell me how you came to think about it in that way? Well, I suppose I have sort of art and science ingrained in me, really, because I, I studied chemistry, but I always wanted to be a writer. And in becoming a writer, I became very interested in poetry. I've always loved visual art. So I've always explored both, and I could never understand why people seem to separate them so much. Um, but I suppose what it really started was I was uh, working as an editor of natural history books, and I started to discover mimicking camouflage. So here were creatures that were seemingly copying patterns from other creatures. And in fact, I then discovered the great art critic Ernst Gombrich actually said that long before we had human artists, nature was copying patterns from one creature to another. And once I discovered this, I couldn't let it go. I mean, it seemed here was nature as an artist, and we can study nature as a scientist, but if nature's also an artist, then here's a link. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganampake Pagan, and I'm speaking today to Peter Forbes. He's a science writer whose book, Dazzled and Deceived, Mimicry and Camouflage, tells the unique and fascinating story of mimicry and camouflage in science, art, warfare, and the natural world. Before we begin, Peter, if I could just get you to very quickly just introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Peter Forbes and what you do. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I'm Peter Forbes. I'm a science writer. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the relationship between art and science. Well, particularly, I found that the field of camouflage is an area where art and science meet quite naturally. Let's, let's go back to nature because your book essentially tracks all the way back to Darwin and the discovery of nature and its ability to mimic um, other more powerful creatures, if you will, as a form of protection. Yes, well, when I came to do the book, I mean, I knew I was going to write about uh, camouflage and warfare because I knew that the naturalists were involved, but I wanted to trace it back to when did we first really become aware. I mean, I mentioned Gombrich, and he was writing in the 1950s or 60s, I think. Um, so it seemed to me that uh, when uh, Henry Walter Bates was in the Amazon jungle in the 1850s, he discovered that there were butterflies that seemed to copy other butterflies. He was an expert, so he knew that these butterflies weren't really related. And, but wherever he went, and the patterns seemed to change, there was a model that, that changed its appearance, and there was the copy that also changed its appearance to keep in track with the model. So this was, it seemed to me, to be a good starting point. This was when human beings first became aware that nature had this copying uh, process going on. With regards to nature, though, and, and where it intersects with humanity and with us as human beings, was mimicry always a part of our makeup, or is that something we learnt from the animals? 
Oh well, I think that you know, obviously we are we are we have our animal part. Um, I think we've been very slow to recognise that animals have uh, this ability. I think that human mimicry just comes from the way we learn. That um, you know, babies and children just start copying. That's the way we learn. They, they they copy gestures and they copy things we say and they get them wrong. But um, it, it's that's just part of our learning process. I think it was you know it's quite late in the day that sort of uh, intelligent conscious humans start to realise that nature does these things. So I mean our, our link with nature there really is that you know it's our animal side where it, uh, we're. Unlike most animals, we're fantastic learners. Well, I suppose that's not quite fair to animals. Some animals learn quite a lot. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, imitation is, is, is the way we learn things. And what about nature's fakers? They use mimicry to protect themselves. Um, what else do they use mimicry for? Well, they use mimicry to, to, to attack. Um, there are creatures like... Um, uh, the orchis mantid, which um, it has colouring, it means it can hide in an orchid flower, or the crab spiders do the same. And um, what they do, they're not trying to hide away. Well, they are hiding, but what they do is that um, when an insect comes to the flower, attracted by the flower's scent and its nectar, uh, they just snaffle the, uh, the creature. Uh, 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 they prey on them. So it's all part of what I call the arms race in nature. Uh, well, I didn't call it that. It was first called that by the naturalist Hugh Cott, where, you know, creatures, uh, they have to survive. They have to survive by preying on other creatures or they have to survive by not being preyed upon. So it's all part of this sort of uh, amazing ability of nature to invent uh, ways of uh, either well, being, of being successful, and you know, you find that uh, plants, for instance, uh, they can't move, so they're fair game for other creatures. But one thing they do is they evolve toxins, uh, or they evolve spines to stop um, animals getting at them. Uh, it's very important because you see what um, locusts can do to crops, or even uh, humble caterpillars. If if the plants had no protection, then basically they 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 wouldn't be able to reproduce. They'd get wiped out by predaceous animals. On a human level, mimicry seems, at least for grown-ups and adults, it seems like a conscious thing. It seems like a conscious effort. On an animal level, is it conscious or is it just part of their nature? Um, no, it's not conscious. I and mean, this is the amazing thing. I mean, obviously... Um, you've got an insect that mimics uh, a leaf, for instance. What's happened is that uh, the insect, like uh, the butterfly it, or the leaf insect, has got a pattern to it. And what's happened is that, I mean, butterfly wings are not that far different in shape to a leaf. Butterflies are quite capable of evolving brownish colours, uh, or leaf insects can have uh, green colours. So what's happened is that at some point, by looking a bit like a leaf, 
the ones that look better, these are, these are butterflies, say, the ones that look more like leaves would survive better, and they would then increasingly come to resemble the leaf. And what's amazing is it appears that the... The, the, the patterns of the genes of these creatures, I mean, it's easy for nature, it seems, to create the most intricate patterns. And the necessity to do this is survival. So you've got two things. You've got the fact that nature is a great maker, like a sculptor. You look at the panoply of creatures in nature, it seems to be able to create more or less any shape. So when the necessity is there to survive, these patterns have been imposed on creatures. There's another level, though, where you get beautiful patterns in nature. For instance, the peacock. The peacock isn't camouflaged. It's, the, the male peacock is very showy, and it's thought, and this started with Darwin, that this exists, really, that the females select the, the most beautiful males. Um, and there is a sort of sense with higher animals that although their patterns have evolved by natural selection, they have no choice. I mean, they are evolved sort of consciously in appreciating these patterns. The most elaborate example are the birds of paradise, mm -hmm. which are very gaudy and very beautiful. But the male does a most amazing dance, and they look basically like ballet. They, you know, David Attenborough filmed some of these a long time ago, and they 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 look like they put on a show where they use their gaudy colours. They turn into different postures. Uh, they're actors, so. In doing this, they are, I think, sort of conscious. I mean, Darwin said that, in a sense, it's amazing that and we think the peacock's tail is beautiful, just like the female peacock does. So there is a sense that nature does have an artistic feeling uh, in, in the higher creatures. But, of course, nature in itself seems random enough that it doesn't somehow control such artistry. It seems... It seems to just be. The patterns that these uh, um, birds of paradise make when they're danced, this pattern seems to evolve. I mean, we know, for instance, I mean, the spider makes a beautiful web, but spiders aren't taught. The, the, the adult spiders don't teach baby spiders how to make webs. This pattern is innate. Um, so uh, uh, at every level, presumably, when nature... Engages in very intricate behaviour. I mean, we call it instinct. These these patterns seem to be built in. But I mean, I do think that when you're looking at higher creatures like birds, which can be quite intelligent, that I think there is a sense that although they can't help doing what they do, they call their song, you know, their mating song, or they do their mating dance. But there's a sort of feeling that they, you know, they, they can't change it. They don't know what they're doing in a sense, but they're involved in it consciously. I mean, you know, when you see some higher birds in their sort of mating dances, it, it's very hard to believe that they're not getting pleasure from, uh, from this ritual. So, Peter, I really want to talk to you about the dazzlingness of World War I ships. But before we get into that, I guess humanity's experimentation with mimicry and deception took to a global scale in the First World War. But what was, what were we like? What were battles like before? And I'm assuming we didn't pay too much attention to this sort of thing. Well, no, I think there's um, an interesting parallel with nature here. In um, animal uh, fighting, animal warfare, um, basically there's no, uh, the strong animals don't camouflage. They put on a show of strength. 
uh, and also um, creatures that are protected against predation, uh, and this is generally smaller animals like insects, um, they use bright warning coloration to show other animals that they're dangerous, so there's no point attacking. Uh, now, if you look at armies in the past, they often tended to wear bright colors like the animals. A red, uh, a red jacket was very common. In fact, soldiers were called red jackets. But what changed all this was the machine gun, which was invented, I don't know the year, but it was in the late 19th century. There isn't much point in going into battle with drums and finery and red jackets, marching, showing us strength, that we look powerful and fine and grand, if somebody's sitting with a machine gun mowing you down. From that point on, and then the aircraft, the aeroplane, the aeroplane can fly over you and, and spot where all the troops are and so on. So by the time World War I erupted, it was obvious that deception, hiding your troops, and certainly not walk, going into battle uh, proclaiming loudly through colour and all sorts of other ways that we are grand, famous, fabulous creatures, don't try to fight us, that was hopeless. It was realised that, that you, if you could hide your forces uh, and use surprise tactics, it was better. So camouflage had to emerge in World War I because it was the first large-scale, fully mechanised war. Talk to me about the dazzle patterns that were applied to warships during World War I. Well, the dazzle pattern, it's a very interesting story. I mean, one of my points about camouflage is that it's a meeting point of art and science, but I have to say that from the World War I onwards, the artists and the scientists quarreled violently about who was best qualified to advise the military on camouflage. And, and there was a lot of this in World War I. The dazzle pattern isn't camouflage, obviously. It's one of these gaudy patterns. It, it lo looks as if it, the ships are painted to look like zebras. The technique was devised by a seaman and naval painter called Norman Wilkinson. And he really was trying to use this dazzle pattern to confuse the rangefinders of the enemy submarines. Now, um, other people were advising the military to use camouflage, to use what's called countershading, which many animals have, to um, obscure the effect of shadows and light, bright light on a, on a ship, for instance, to make it uh, invisible. Norman Wilkinson said, you can't make a ship invisible, but what you can do is to confuse the rangefinders. Um, so um, a lot of ships, mostly the merchant ships, were painted in dazzle camouflage in World War I. It has to be said that it's not sure, it's not certain whether it had any effect. The statistics are a bit ambiguous. But the strange thing is that the crews of the dazzle ships did feel as if by magic, it has some protective effect on them. <laughs> uh, but at the end of the war, uh, this man Wilkinson and a man called John Graham Carr, who was a, a naturalist camouflage expert, they almost came to blows over who was responsible for camouflage in World War One. And in fact, the Admiralty had a hearings to, to find out who was uh, uh, the, the inventor. In fact, Wilkinson won this little battle and was awarded, um, you know, uh, um, a money sort of recompense, you know, an award for his work. 
Um, but this issue has never quite gone away, really. Of um, the dazzle ships are very striking, and in the you know in the hundred year anniversary celebration commemorations of World War One. Uh, in London, a dazzle ship has been recreated and it's sitting there on the Thames. The dazzle ships capture public imagination. Where, how effective they were is, is not certain, but it was a very bold initiative for World War One. And of course, we shifted gears for World War Two and beyond, where camouflage became all about hiding things in plain sight. Um, yes, and, and the, the most striking uh, episode of camouflage really was the, the Battle of El Alamein. And here, the naturalist has seemed to have won because the camouflage instructor in Egypt for the Battle of El Alamein was a naturalist, Hugh Cott, and he was the great expert in Britain on camouflage. And, of course, they were fighting in the desert where um, it, it's quite easy to be seen from enemy planes because the desert is, there aren't many places to hide and it's no use having sort of jungle camouflage. In fact, w when our forces went out to North Africa, the tanks and armoured cars arrived in jungle-style camouflage. Somebody watched them being unloaded and said, hold on, everything is sand colour here. This isn't a very good idea. So they started to devise ways of, of trying to uh, hide, which meant basically burying things in pits in the desert with uh, sort of sand-colored screens over them. But more important than that, they realized that it wasn't possible to hide all of your forces. So they resorted to subterfuge, where they disguised tanks as harmless trucks. And they moved things around overnight. They devised this sort of cover for a tank to make it look like a truck uh, and this could be taken off very easily and they moved tanks around overnight disguised them as trucks and it looked to the enemy as if what was a, uh, one day it, they said oh yes there were just a bunch of trucks here next day they said oh nothing has changed but what had happened was that tanks had been driven up overnight and had their their truck camouflage applied and this was for, um, for the, the, the leading battle of El Alamein. Um, they also did things like they created dummy depots and a dummy railhead. They actually laid a dummy railway line with the idea of drawing off the enemy to, to places where there wasn't any attack going to be made. So, in fact, for El Alamein, the enemy had to divide its forces because they, they thought there were forces in two areas, but one of them was purely a dummy. <laughs> uh, and when the battle started, they were they weren't prepared. So um, these were the tactics in uh, World War Two, very very different. But of course, you mentioned at the beginning that um, also, of course, electronics were becoming more important in World War Two, and the idea of radar came in. So you had to you had to use methods that went beyond simply disguising visual appearance. Uh, by the end of the war. You, you know, you had to, you had radar jamming and things like this. Uh, it was no longer a matter of simply what you could see. Uh, warfare was being conducted in many other channels as well. So, Peter, I'm curious because in the 21st century, when we look at the equipment of war and the tools of war, it almost feels like we're not trying to hide these things anymore. American warships are 
a dull, drab, gray American fighter planes are just really boring. And is it because we're looking at these instruments as being intimidating and we want people to see them? Um, well, but it's not really true because uh, the, great, the big thing in aircraft is stealth. Um, a stealth plane is one that is supposed to be virtually invisible on radar. So you could see that the, 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 the medium has changed from um, uh, purely visual to, um, uh, to electronic. I mean, in fact, we have drones now where, um, you know, you, you, you can target um, somewhere without having any human beings near it. Vision at, the, at that point has got nothing to do with it. But, of course, troops still fight hand-to-hand, and camouflage is still used to... Uh, the uniform of troops is still, is still camouflaged. But, you see, stealth is interesting because, in fact, when we invented radar, we discovered that bats already had it. Bats navigate at night by radar, and bats feed mainly on moths, and we've discovered that moths can actually jam the bats' radar. They've evolved this because um, bats were clever than moths, and so the moths would have died out, probably, if they didn't evolve some sort of countermeasures. So what we discover is even when we shift our camouflage to a different mode, that is, trying to be invisible to radar, we see that the animals got there first. That was science author Peter Forbes. You can find his book, Dazzled and Deceived, Mimicry and Camouflage, on Amazon.com. I highly recommend it. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to BFM.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.